officers have the power over citizens of a life and death, a power shared only by the state. Only the state can put you to death or a policeman with a gun. But then it was the police who said, what are you going to do next? I killed down more people than any other officer on the Portland Police Bureau. It was my go-to move. I mean, at the end of the day, when when you, when you have a problem, you cannot solve it by yourself. You're going to call us and we'll be there for service and we'll do our best to, to help you solve that problem. It is December 2016, and ribald resident historian Doug Kank Crispin has been reading. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. The police have to be society's mommy because society is so freaking stupid. That a group of Cayuse men and leaders got together and made the decision that it was time for to dispatch Dr. Wooden. When it all fails, call the cops. Simply going in and arresting people and then leaving is not good enough. Somebody has to step in, and it has to be the police. Um, I'm not sure that it was as much racially motivated as that we just had dead possums and we hated the burger barn. Just to let you know that as a police officer, that I love you and I care about you. Welcome to another edition of the Kick-Ass Oregon History Season 10 Policing in Oregon Book Club. Like always, I pick the books I want to read, and then we fucking talk about them with the people that wrote them. Today, we talk with Peter Bogue, professor and Columbia chair in the history of the American West at Washington State University. We talked with him about his book, Same-Sex Affairs, Constructing and Controlling Homosexuality, in the Pacific Northwest. So give our listeners the elevator speech. What is same-sex affairs about? Well, it concerns the late 19th, early 20th century Pacific Northwest. The book focuses primarily 1890 to 1930, but I'm mostly dealing with the years between about 1910 and 1920. And um, it concerns the um, development of an early, what you might call, gay community in Portland. That's what I set out to write about. But when I began working, I found uh, many more sources on people that I wouldn't consider to be gay, but who were involved in same-sex affairs at this time. Now, your book, of course, is not new. It was published by the University of California Press in 2003, but I thought it was a great title for us to examine as we look at policing in Oregon, and it's a wonderful tome in kind of the collection of LGBT history, but it also happens to be one of my favorite books on Pacific Northwest history, kind of broadly. So full disclosure, I'm a huge fanboy of this book. Now, before we get too far into it, uh, let's think about today present era, not in a historical context, but what is policing? Mm -hmm. I think when people hear the term policing and when it's often used, we think of governmental agencies, namely the police force, regulating sex and sexuality. But policing goes beyond governmental agencies. It goes on all around us in our daily lives. And it is the one one can make you make the argument a fairly narrow argument that policing is the reinforcement of heteronormative standards. So this can be even something on a, a, in the schoolyard of people, uh, young children. Uh, using nasty epithets against others that they perceive to be non-heteronormative. And that is a form of policing. The idea is to try to make the person who's the victim or uh, or the object of uh, policing to feel not good about themselves and to change their behaviors in some ways to fit into what others perceive as 
uh, acceptable. So it's a broad range. But uh, what I'm interested in my book um, is the um, the governmental agencies that were involved in various ways in trying to um, police the boundaries of what was acceptable sex and sexuality. Now, one of the things I particularly enjoy is how you capture the essence of transient labor in the Pacific Northwest and how Portland was really kind of the nexus of that. And this workforce was so mobile. In 1914, you write, the laborers in the region, in one season, they could be at a logging camp for 15 to 30 days, a mining camp for 60, railroad construction site for 10 days, and harvesting for seven. It was just kind of constant movement. And furthermore, you say, thus, rather than having to travel from one site to the next for sexual relations, men found that the hinterland itself was a sexual space. And of course, there weren't many women there. Right. Yeah, so we often look in the history, those of us who study queer history or LGBT history or the history of gays, we often look to urban spaces. That's just our fallback. We automatically think that urban spaces are the places where gay communities first developed. And there is some logic to that. Uh, but what I found is that rural spaces is where a lot of sex took place <laughs> between people of the same sex. And this was one of the curious things about this entire project. I did not set out to write about transient laborers. In fact, they were the furthest thing from my radar. I was interested in studying the emergence of um, a gay male community that I perceived to be a middle class. And as I did my research, that proved to be the case. But when I was doing my research, I found more and more and more documentary evidence of men from the transient working class background and also ethnic and racial minority backgrounds who were often the transient laborers uh, appearing in arrest records. And what troubled me, because I didn't want to find this as a gay person myself and having to um, have lived in this culture where uh, being gay is often equated with being a child molester, um, and so what I was finding in these documents when I was trying to find same-sex crimes and sodomy and this type of thing is I kept finding men who were having sex with underage males. And, and this, I, that's the only thing I was finding in the records. And I was and once in a while I'd find the type of thing that I wanted to find, but I had all this other evidence and all this material, and I was just racking my I wasn't sure what to do with all this. And it occurred to me one day after I had come across the umpteenth episode of this sort of thing in the records that this was a story too. And so that's what led me then to who are these men who are doing this, who, who are engaged in sexual relations with youth? What is this in the larger context of transient history and labor history, working class history? And indeed, there was an entire story about a sexual subculture of transient men and transient youths who traveled together, who worked together, and they formed relationships and they had sex together. In your descriptions of the North End or Portland's present Old Town are some of the best I've read. Um, now, that is where so many of these working men and boys would come between seasonal jobs. Fall would find thousands and thousands of these men in these cheap lodging houses in the saloons and the pool halls with plenty of idle time on their hands. Now, let's talk about the racial diversity in the North End. Yeah, well... One of the things that we know about the Pacific Northwest, and we especially know about Oregon, is that these are parts of the country that have um, long been dominated by people that we generally refer to as white people. Um, it's been called a white region. Some people have argued that's one of the regional distinct things that make 
the Pacific North regionally distinctive. And of course, there have long been any number of laws in Oregon uh, barring and actually barring people of different racial minority groups from migrating to the state or once here a- attempting to get rid of them and by other means. But the transient laborers came to the Pacific Northwest, you know, by and large, I mean, the vast majority were white people, but there was a significant minority uh, who were um, people of um, different racial backgrounds and different ethnic backgrounds. And if you go back into the late 19th and early 20th century, someone from Greece, for example, or someone from Eastern Europe actually was considered to be of a different race. But the um, transient laborers, there were large numbers, obviously, of um, men from Asia and not just China, though they er, Chinese came early to the Pacific Northwest. They were less a factor after the turn of the 20th century, but there are still Asians in the Northwest, and a number of them had settled down into um, residences in the northern part of Portland, kind of butted up against what was called the North End. But there were also large numbers of South Asians, so men from India. Uh, there were large numbers of men from Greece and Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. Uh, there were Irish. So there was a real mix. And there were African Americans also. And the North End, because it was a working class district, a, and there are still elements of this that linger uh, in the Burnside area today. And Burnside kind of was the axis of the North End 120 years ago, 130 years ago. It's amazing how that history, it's still a living history there. Um, but the um, this was the working class neighborhood. This is where the cheap amusements were. This is where the relatively cheap accommodations were for all these men coming when they were unemployed, coming into the large urban areas to, to find inexpensive housing, inexpensive food. Uh, and this is the place that racial minority, like African Americans and Asians, were de facto segregated into in Portland. So their populations were relatively large. They made up the, you know, the the largest minorities of these people, the largest majorities of these people were located in the North End. And many of these racial minorities in the North End were blamed by the middle class for the criminal and moral problems in Portland, festering in the rapidly growing ghetto district, as you call it. <laughs> and policing really focused on the North End is, is what I found in your book. Um, often the race of the proprietor was identified in the investigations. Japanese-owned establishment was one from Portland that you quoted specifically. Why was it important for the authorities to focus on this kind of uh, this, this racial designation? Well, this is a complex question to answer, um, and there's many ways that I could go about answering it, but this was one of the interesting things that I found out when I was doing this research into same-sex crimes, and I was finding in the records over and over and over again that transient men having sex, usually with underage boys, um, and so I started looking at these, and Portland is fortunate in that it has a long run of daily police arrest records. So if somebody was arrested, they would be brought into the main station, which was located near the north end, uh, and they would be booked. And their name would be put into this large ledger, the, what time they were brought in, what their name was, what their crime was, what their nationality or race was, and also where they were arrested. And so once I had all this data of all these people that I really didn't want to deal with (laughs) originally, um, then I thought, you know, these addresses here. So what do, what do these addresses mean? And so I, I got some old maps. The current addresses don't really match up with the old addresses because addresses have changed over the years. But luckily, we have the old maps. The Oregon Historical Society has the old maps and the old address system. So I was able to uh, take um, old maps and locate these addresses. 
And it became very clear to me that there was a high concentration of arrests of these working-class men in the North End. Okay, so this is where the arrests were done. And so then I was wondering, you know, why, you know, why are they focusing particularly on transient laborers? Well, this, of course, has to do with classism. You know, these men were needed. I mean, if it weren't for these men, the Pacific Northwest, you know, the people who were doing the arresting and the upper classes and the elite classes whose labor, they depended on the labor of these men. You know, they wouldn't have had the success that they had, but they're also targeting these men. Um, so racism was a huge factor. Race was palpable. It was on the surface because these men were of such racially diverse backgrounds. That was a threat. And this is a threat across the United States during this time. I mean, whether it's a real threat is a debatable point. But to the people who are making laws, these these men threaten the establishment. So it was part of a broader racism that was going on in the United States. But then, of course, when I look carefully at the sex crimes, uh, there was huge concern about what was happening to America's youth and the future generation. Now, a lot of these boys who were um, transient boys, but they also were uh, boys from the working classes. Many of them, they tended to be white, actually. And they, uh, their families lived in or near the North End. And this was a way for these boys to, in, in the urban setting, they, the, you know, on the road, they were involved in these partnerships. When they came to the urban setting, usually the partnerships broke apart because it was too expensive to try to care for a unit together. Um, and so, but a lot of these boys who were in these arrest records too were actually local boys, not just transient boys, but local boys. And this was a way for these boys to actually survive or to add to their working class families' coffers. And there was a thought that you talk about in the book that the lower classes or even the lower races were more sexually degenerate and they posed a moral threat to the broader public. Yeah. So those words that you use would not be my words. They would right. be the words right. of the people, the the elite classes right. at the time. They saw them as lower races and they saw them as by nature being de Generate. So that was just part of being a racial minority. You were automatically sexually suspect. And so that's part of this broader racialized context of understanding what's going on in America generally at this time and how it is um, because of the large number of men who fit this profile, um, this became something that was um, very significant um, in Portland and a, a major concern in Portland. Because these, you know, these, if you think about these men and if you think about your own reactions to people that you see living, homeless people living uh, in North Portland today, um, for the for the elite classes back then, the middle classes back then, these were the dregs of society. And the, and and this was and Portland was much smaller than it is today. And these people lived not too far from where some of the most elite neighborhoods were. So they were concerned about these people. And here they are, and here they're doing things that were considered despicable. And so, yeah, the police were used to make life difficult for these these men and these boys. Now, the paradigm shifts. November 8th, 1912, a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Trout is arrested by the Portland Police Department. Tell us about this. Yeah. Well, I believe that um, Benjamin Trout was actually arrested um, for somewhere 
around the North End. I, I don't remember the address. That was too long ago for, re, for me to remember. But I believe it was kind of on the periphery of the um, North End. And he was arrested for a petty crime. He was a younger fellow. I, I can't remember his exact age. He might have been around 18. So he was actually considered a juvenile for the day. You know, today, 18-year-olds, that's when people achieve adulthood. Back then, the laws were changing, but it generally was 21 for males. And this, people don't sometimes know that, you know, what we consider an adult today isn't necessarily what we always considered an adult. And so when we get into questions of uh, when people, you know, at what age people become, oh, I can't what is the word that I'm looking for? Um, that they become p- culpable mm-hmm. uh, in kind of age of consent. Yeah, of age stuff. of consent. So when people, you know, at what age people can give their consent? That actually is a historical creation. It's how we, as a society, want to uh, understand what a child is, or, or what we want to preserve as a child, and so on and so forth. But in any case, Benjamin Trout, he was a relatively young man. And he was arrested for, I think I mentioned a petty crime. I don't actually remember what the crime was, but it had nothing to do with sex at all. But he was brought into the police station, and one could imagine being arrested and brought in for questioning, especially when you're of a relatively tender age. Um, And he... um, this was not unusual that I found uh, among uh, young youngsters or a lot of people who were arrested during these days. That, um, but especially young, young, younger men or boys to kind of throw suspicion off themselves. They would often start um, discussing what they knew about crimes of other people, and so he began telling the police about sex, having had sex with a number of men from the middle middle classes, not the working classes, but the white middle classes, and not just any men from the middle classes, but some of them who were relatively high placed in society. And so this is, this is 1912 is when the police significantly, sh- they're, they're going to continue to focus on the working class men because that threat, so-called threat, doesn't disappear or dissipate. But now all of a sudden, because of all these years they had been so focused on the working classes, this actually provided men of the middle classes somewhat of a of a cover. And so they hadn't been that much targeted because they're white, because they're from the middle and elite classes. They're not considered by nature to be degenerate. And as a result, there's this shift now of this uh, focus all of a sudden on these middle-class men, and it becomes a full-fledged scandal in Portland, the 1912 sex scandal. And it was huge. Uh, it was it, enormous. 59 men at one point. At least. At least 59 men. Deputy District Attorney Frank Collier is quoted in your book, and he said, this is the first time that a case of this nature ever came before this court. But that's incorrect, of course. But men had been policed for same-sex affairs in Multnomah County for some time. It's just they hadn't been white, and they hadn't been middle class, and they hadn't been professionals. Is that a correct take on the situation? Yeah, that's pretty much. Actually, if you do go back in the arrest records, once in a while you will find a white middle class person. Um, But it's a little bit different in 1912 because what Benjamin uh, excuse me, Benjamin Trout uh, began to talk about was this network of men in the middle classes and and so and as the investigations developed in fact they the, what the police discovered was actually what we would call a cohesive early gay or prototypical gay community that apparently the police had not been aware of before and that's a little bit and, you know, that type of thing is really hard to prove. This is what they said. They've never discovered this before. And there are very few arrests for white middle-class men for same-sex sexual offenses in Portland. But someone had to know, you know. But, yeah, that's uh, the rhetoric anyway. 
And a lot of this is occurring in the Central Business District. Yeah. I mean, Lounsdale Park and yeah. who would have thunk it? The YMCA as well is yeah. sometimes called the YMCA yeah. scandal as well. So this is this is right on the doorstep. You can't kind of kind of look at the North End with your nose in the air. Yeah, this is not the North End. These are the institutions of the middle class. You know, the Lonsdale Park um, and its relationship to Chapman Park. Um, Imperial Hotel, The correct? Imperial Hotel, the restrooms of the Imperial Hotel. Um, and Laurelhurst Park was also mentioned, you know, and that's kind of a Tony area of town at that time, and the YMCA. So, yeah, these are middle-class places and middle-class institutions, horror of horrors. <laughs> so we really have two disparate groups of men having same-sex affairs in your group. We have yeah. a transient ethnic group that's largely confined in the North End, and then we have this mainly white professional class decidedly not in that geographic boundary in Whitechapel. And it seems like one was actively policed and the other was ignored for years. Yeah, it's hard to say that they're completely ignored Fair because enough. they— they also are subject to policing because they they are actively working to keep their community relatively under wraps. So they do realize that there are larger forces that require a certain amount of secrecy. And one group identifies as gay or homosexual, and the other typically didn't. Is that a correct read? Yeah, and that's, I think that's a good way of, so the the men who were caught up in the 1912 scandal, now a lot of them were, were married and had families, but there was a significant proportion who were young and single and um, never married, you know, following them further on in the records, they remained single the rest of their life. So they were people who really for the first time in modern history in the Western world, they were part of this group of people who were able to carve out of the changing circumstances of modern life a lifestyle that didn't require them to marry and have children. And so they were able to cultivate, a, this is, you know, one of my definitions of the emergence of modern gay, um, gay culture, modern gay community, the ability to construct lives around their sexual interests and identify their sexuality as gay. Where the transient working class men, they also carved out of a life for themselves that involves same-sex uh, relationships, but their lives weren't, they didn't choose to necessarily pursue a life as what you would call a gay person and openly identify as a gay person. And the sexual activities, uh, their interests were quite different as well. You know, the, the 1912 scandal men, largely oral sexual activities. And the men uh, before that, the transient working class, was uh, more anal or interfemorial. Am I using that term correctly? Interfemoral, yeah. I, I had no idea what that was. But then <laughs> it's it rubbing total between sense. the legs. Right, exactly. <laughs> so so e even the sexual activities that the two groups uh, participated in or enjoyed or enthusiasts of were quite different as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, so the working class sex acts were rooted in a working class tradition, and the working classes tended not to use their mouths in or, or uh, in um, sexual relations. And this was different from the middle classes. Uh, middle classes had a longer tradition of using uh, their mouths, uh, partly as a preventative from. Uh, you know, if it's an opposite sex or what we call an opposite sex, and I use opposite in quotation marks, so an opposite sex uh, couple, you know, using mouth for kissing or this sort of thing or using mouths in other ways that wouldn't bring about the possibility of pregnancy. So middle classes had a longer tradition of using 
their mouths and sex than working class people did. And so the men that in the transient world, they did what they were used to. Now, it isn't, though, that one never could find cases of oral sex among working class men. And I did occasionally find that sort of thing. And so I had to deal with that and try to explain that in my book. But there are generally cultural differences between the middle and working classes. It wasn't unusual for working class people when they had sex, like even a married couple in the late 19th century, to otherwise be fully clothed. And so they often didn't even see each other's bodies because there were certain things that were considered not appropriate. And nudity was not really appropriate in the American context, in the working classes, and to a degree in the middle classes too. But so working classes, um, yeah, so there was a very different sex culture. Now, this scandal also transformed how authorities in the community at large viewed homosexuals, actually defined same-sex people uh, having sexual relations together. As you note in the book, In 1917, a report was issued by the Commission to Investigate the Oregon State Penitentiary, and the term degenerate had been used quite a bit, and that was actually dropped. And the word homosexual is used exclusively. Can you tell us a bit more about that shift in the mindset, the vocabulary that the authorities, and then as an extension, the community is using? Yeah, so I'm not only interested in this book in looking at the development of what I would call a gay culture, gay subculture in Portland. But I'm also interested in understanding how broader society shifted its thinking about sexuality. People often take it for granted, although I think more and more people generally know today, thanks to the effects that queer studies have had over the last 30 years, that um, sexuality changes over time. And so that homosexuality, as we understand it today, hasn't always existed. A homosexual hasn't always existed. By the same token, neither has a heterosexual. That's always important to remember. Heterosexuality hasn't always existed. Um, and so these, these, this modern sex regime or sexuality regime that divides people into heterosexuals and homosexuals. This is something that is taking place in the Western world in the late 19th and early 20th century. And this is the time period that my book takes place in. So I'm trying to understand in the local context, in Portland, Oregon, the Pacific Northwest more generally, how we move into this modern understanding that defines some people as homosexuals and some people as heterosexuals. Previously, if people had engaged in what we would call a homosexual behavior, whatever that is, a same-sex sex act, it wasn't a marker that someone was a homosexual as a person, as an identity. It was an indication that there, this person had some sort of mental degeneracy. Okay, so the term degenerate was often used. And so working class people, because they weren't middle class by definition, they were automatically assumed to be degenerate and that they engaged in all kinds of questionable sexual behaviors, not just same-sex sex, but prostitution and, you know... I imagine oral sex between heterosexual couples. Yes, and racy type things. These were considered to be automatically just degenerate people. Okay, so what I found, you know, so trying to understand how we move from the view of somebody just being labeled generally a degenerate because they're doing unseemly sexual practices into how people who are under uh, people who engage in same-sex sexual activities are increasingly assumed to be homosexual. So this is partly what happens in 1912 as these cases involving middle-class men who 
in a sense, are assumed not to be degenerate because they're middle-class men and they're white-collar workers, they're lawyers, they're bookkeepers, some of them are doctors, they're you know, the pillars of society or the community, some of them were described as. How it was that they could engage in same-sex sexual activities they weren't considered to be degenerate. And so this is a time when a, a new way of understanding people in Portland, and I trace this through the, the trial records. Um, and so what I see over the course of several of the trials for men involved in the 1912-1913 same-sex sex scandal is that the legal system in Oregon increasingly comes to understand such people as homosexuals and no longer degenerates. And so by the time you get to 1917 and you're dealing with the Oregon State Penitentiary, because that was the document that you brought up, the um, men who were in the penitentiary who tended to be in, um, arrested for sodomy or same-sex offenses, they tended to be transient working-class men still. They were increasingly viewed by the legal authorities and the prison officials to be homosexuals and no longer simply degenerates. And whether or not that's an appropriate term to use for these men is obviously a debatable point. And this is part of the how, how we started our conversation today. This is what policing is all about. It's trying to put boundaries around people where boundaries don't actually fit the huge number of sexualities that actually each one of us is a sexual being. And even if we consider ourselves to be asexual, that's in relationship to sexuality. And so we all have different interests that can't just simply neatly be categorized into this category and this category. So the creation of categories is, in a sense, a type of policing. That's a fantastic, fantastic <laughs> response. I like that. Because of the scandal, the policing of sodomy in Oregon changed drastically. You detailed that the existing statute in 1912 dated back to the Oregon Territory in 1853. I'm going to quote it here. It said, Every person who shall commit sodomy or the crime against nature, either with mankind or any beast, shall on conviction be punished. And some of the participants in the scandal felt that they couldn't be charged as the laws covered anal penetration and not fellatio. But just after the scandal, legislature passed a law that updated the statute to include oral sex. So the activities of the men in the YMCA scandal, the 1912 scandal, whatever name you go by, actually changed so much in the legislation within Oregon and, of course, with, throughout the Pacific Northwest. I find that absolutely fascinating that it was just this incident, again, in the central business core of downtown Portland, not the men in the North End that did this. Uh, yeah, well, this is, you know, the history of these crazy sodomy laws that we have. And the tradition coming from British common law or English common law, excuse me, is that um, the crime of buggery is how in the, the civil courts in England, it, it had been called sodomy long ago, but when the civil courts, the civil legal system took uh, ownership um, away from the church in England to meet out laws and regulations and punishments, they switched from the sodomy, which is more of a, biblical term and a, a religious term to the use of buggery. And of course, a number of American colonies actually followed, um, the, used the term sodomy. So in America, we tend to talk about sodomy because of our the, the history of our laws and the different relationship we have with religion than in England or uh, elsewhere in Europe does. But the tradition in uh, British common law was buggery was uh, anal intercourse, and this is part of this 
it was unimagined that people might engage in sex in different ways or what exactly constituted sex. You know, I did not have sex with that woman. Well, what, what do you mean? What does sex mean to you versus uh, the rest of us? But um, a number of men had been successful in California, actually, and this is what led California, le- the le- California legislature to change its sodomy law to be m- more specific because uh, s- some of the, some men taken before the courts in California, late 19th, early 20th century, successfully argued in court that, well, I was arrested for engaging in fellatio, but under the common law and how this is traditionally understood, buggery and our sodomy laws, that they don't refer to oral sex. And so they actually weren't convicted. And so some of the men who were in the know in the 1912 scandal, some of these were well-educated men, also believed that they would not be convicted because um, the Oregon sodomy law, by tradition, uh, referred only to anal sex. And this led the state legislature to change the Oregon sodomy law to read more specifically the types of sex acts that people could be convicted um, under, uh, under this statute. So they added oral sex into the mix. One of the problems with doing this in any type of law is that the more uh, refined becomes the definition, then the more specific, in a sense, the law is, and people can always argue, well, this isn't oral sex, and this isn't anal sex, so you can't arrest me. And so the Oregon legislature also threw in the mi- into the mix, you know, people can be convicted under the sodomy law for engaging in any type of act that is considered to be perverse. Well, who, of course, decides what perverse is. Now, there are some states elsewhere in the Pacific Northwest, Idaho is a good example, where uh, these, uh, where men who were uh, charged with sodomy also made the argument, I was engaging in oral sex, and so this doesn't really count. Um, but the courts would have none of it. And they said, it doesn't matter. This is all perverse to us. It all fits under. And so the sodomy laws were never changed. They were just broadly interpreted. So it's a two, two different approaches, a broad interpretation in Idaho versus a more specific uh, interpretation in, in Oregon. And the sentencing went from a possible one to a maximum of five years up to a potential 15 years yeah. after the 1912. And it, it, you document in the book yeah. that actually men that were brought up on these charges did serve longer prison sentences as yes. well. right. I was able to find that in the records. Now, Oswald West was Oregon's <laughs> governor at the time. Let's talk eugenics and sterilization and castration, happy, happy topics. What do you think of Oswald West? Um, we did a podcast called Oswald West Was an Asshole, uh, which kind <laughs> oh, of sum dear. up our <laughs> thoughts. What What are your thoughts on, on Oswald West? Well, um, I don't know if he would, you know, considering his... He was very much involved in the development of this new sodomy law in 1913 as a direct response to the 1912 Portland same-sex scandal. I don't know if he would like to be considered an asshole in that context. Probably not. Yeah, you know, um, a couple days ago I was visiting the Vista House on Crown Point with my mom. I took my mom on an outing, and she hadn't been up there in years, and it was Lovely. It's a beautiful building, and um, it, we enjoyed the exhibits, and we went through the gift shop, and there was a um, book about Oswald West, and so I kind of thumbed through it and saw all the wonderful things that Oswald West had done, but nothing negative um, in his. But, of course, you have to understand, you know, according to the context of the time, what Oswald West did in the context of his reaction to the 1912 scandal was he, he would probably have been considered a hero for this back then. So, you know, our sensibilities have certainly changed. Um, but historians gloss over this. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't. But I think historians do. 
they glossed over Oswald West. They gloss over his support for eugenics. Oh, yeah. They gloss over sure. sterilization. Bethina Owens Adair as well. She doesn't get this treatment either. No, no. Bethina Owens Adair is usually seen as, you know, a, 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 one of the early. Uh, advocates for women's rights. Which she was. And these are all important things. You know, she got it under very difficult circumstances for women to become medical doctors. This was very, very onerous and laborious and difficult for anybody. But for women, they were not treated well in medical schools. And it was extremely difficult. And so Bethenia Owens Adair is um, usually held up as a heroine of the early women's rights movement in Oregon, and with obvious justification. But then she was also, like Oswald West, involved in activities that have since that time become um, less popular, including eugenical sterilization. Now, you say that after the 1912 scandal, sterilization became vengeance against homosexuals. And I don't disagree with that interpretation. Yeah, well, you know, this is the 1912 scandal in Portland is what finally pushed over uh, into acceptance briefly, but it would come back again, a sterilization. So, you know, Oregon, Oregonians have a long history also of accepting fairly progressive causes and also being opposed to things that trample too much on people's rights and liberty. So there is that strand in Oregon. At the same time, we have a counter strand, you know, where it's been a state where there have been atrocious examples of racism. And we go back to the Oregon Constitution that barred African-Americans from living in the state. Um, But, you know, Oregon during the progressive period, uh, you know, 1900 to 1920, when my book takes place, was one of the leaders in the progressive movement in the United States. And Oregon was slower to come around to eugenical sterilization, partly because of its progressive attitude and liberal and open-minded attitude on so many issues. But the 1912 scandal is what shifted thinking and finally would lead the legislature to adopt. And Oswald West was the key figure in writing the eugenical sterilization law. And it is in direct response to the uncovering of a homosexual network in Portland. And so Oregon adopted eugenical sterilization, and it was prescribed for people who would be convicted under the sodomy statute, which would be men like those arrested in Portland in 1912. Now, but it only lasted for a a brief time. Oregonians rescinded this law at the very next election. So it was written in, it became law in the first part of 1913, and the I believe it was the election, the November election of 1913. Oregon's rescinded the law, but then the legislature repassed it in 1917, and it remained on the books until 1965. So attitudes had changed, and Oregonians had come to accept eugenical sterilization. Originally, eugenical sterilization, the idea was to remove the degenerates from society. From They didn't talk about gene pools back then, but that's basically what they meant. They didn't want them breeding because it was believed that they would produce more degenerates and this would weigh down society and society, instead of progressing, society would regress. Um, but... Um, Eugenical sterilization, then in Oregon and elsewhere, they once it was adopted, it wasn't just any longer to kind of eliminate the um, the degenerates from the gene pool. It was also then used as a tool to punish people for their crimes. And Oregon sterilization laws, really, as you detail, became a model for other states in our region as well. So so it was kind of, unfortunately, rather groundbreaking here. 
<laughs> yes. So that's true. So the um, revisions to the Washington, Washington state actually had adopted sterilization before Oregon. Uh, it was a fairly broad law, but it was rewritten, oh boy, I can't remember, around 1921. And um, when it was rewritten and made more specific, it was modeled specifically on the Oregon law of 1917, which was based on the 1913 law, which came about thanks to Oswald West and the reaction to the 1912 scandal. And then a little bit later, um, Idaho also adopted a sterilization law, and it was modeled specifically on the Oregon law. So this is the way in which the 19 reactions to the 1912 scandal, reactions to homosexuality in Oregon, actually spread outward and affected the entire Pacific Northwest region. And I am all about a mass gay wedding on Oswald West State Park Beach <laughs> sometime the same soon. thing. <laughs> With lots of beer, you know, <laughs> drinking and just having a good time. Yeah. So it's, yeah, uh, I don't know, though. I've thought about that, too. And then I thought, well, would I like to put it into my own autobiography that I um, patronize Oswald West State Park. So see, we person. are actually, we are getting what you feel about Oswald West here. Well, this is yeah, wonderful. no, I think he's a horrible man. But he often, he also did some wonderful things, sure. you know. He sure. did the, the preservation of the Oregon beaches. This is, you know, it's astounding to so many people who come to Oregon, um, from elsewhere in the United States, let alone overseas, that these are publicly owned. And Oswald West is to thank for that. And he was very instrumental in the development of our state park system, which for many years, I don't know what the view is these days, but for many years was considered to be a model for the rest of the United States. So, you know, I try not to judge too much the people from the past because they are products of their time. And it's not that we can forgive them for that, but what's more interesting to me is try to understand why people thought the way they did at a particular time in history. I appreciate your stance on history there. I'm still going to call him an asshole if, if, <laughs> okay. if you'll let me. Kick so. asshole Oregon history, right? <laughs> Looking back on the book 12 years now, what parts really stand out to you as kind of your favorites? You know, what, what do you remember writing? And it was just like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah, well, thanks uh, for that question. You know, when you asked me to appear here, um, I had to go back and reread my book because I hadn't read it in in many years. But I do remember, I do remember, and this is, writing is not an easy thing. Uh, maybe some people find it easy, but it's something that I've struggled with. But over the course of my career, and I've written three books now, and it hasn't necessarily become easier, but I enjoy the process more and more. And so to me, writing is also a very creative process. I, you know, I'm an amateur artist too. And so at different times in my life, I've done painting and um, that's very creative. But I've, I've come to look at writing as something creative. And I do remember often as I wrote this book years ago, you know, just I just couldn't wait to get up in the morning to get in there and work because I was working on something that was so interesting and I had all these ideas that I thought about when I was sleeping or waking up and of how this fits together and that fits together. Um, so I can't remember a specific um, story of the writing, but, um, you know, there there were definitely some some memorable experiences I had doing the the research and writing and chapter I think it's chapter five, which originally appeared in a shorter version in the Oregon Historical Quarterly as an article for them, and as a result of that article, 
um, which, so it's chapter five, and it deals with um, the controversy over the the so-called YMC. The people were, some people were calling the 1912 sex scandal the YMCA scandal, and it was a working class editor. His name was Dana Sleeth, and he um, was the editor of the Portland News, which was a working class newspaper. And he had a vendetta against the upper classes. And so to him, the this middle class sex scandal, it was it was an indication that the elites in society were degenerates. And that it happened at that some of the men who were involved in the scandal had a relationship with the YMCA, which was the hallowed middle class elite class institution, a philanthropic institution for the uplift of Portland youths and young men. So to him, you know, the YMCA was just the perfect target for his um, class warfare. Um, But so I wrote the article and I used the sources that I had available for me. But uh, after writing them, uh, writing the article and it appeared, I received a... um, email, I think it was an email, or it could have been a letter from a fellow named Peter Slath, who was, I'm not sure if he still works for the Oregonian, but he's a journalist, and he was working for the Oregonian, and Dana Slath was his grandfather. And he said, you know, I have all my grandfather's old letters and correspondence and mail, and he contacted me and said, you know, if you're interested to... And so he happily shared all this, which added so much to when I was writing the chapter for the book. Well, you better listen, my sisters and brothers, because if you do, you can hear there are voices still calling across the And they're all crying across the ocean And they're crying across the land And they will till we all come to understand None of us are free None of us are free None of us are free One of us has changed None of us are free And there are people still in darkness just can't see the light If you don't say it's wrong Then that says it's right We got to try to Kick-Ass Oregon History Season 10 is a production of ORHistory.com It is written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kang Crispin and Andy Linder. Citations are available by request. We hope that you agree that today's episode contains some kick-ass Oregon history. If you like what you hear, you should give us money to make more. Visit orhistory.com to learn how you can give us money once or over and over again. Follow us on the internet, Twitter, at Oregon underscore history. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram, too, at Kick-Ass Oregon History. As always, visit us on the web at orhistory.com or send an email directly to historian Doug Kank Crispin, oregonhistorian at gmail.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kank Crispin. You know, what we consider an adult today isn't necessarily what we always considered an adult. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
And it's time for us all to realize That the truth is shining bright Right before our eyes None of us are free None of us are free None of us are free One of us is changed None of us are free orhistory.com